Welcome once again, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer, the editor of Book and Film Globe, the boss, the head man, the top dog, the big cheese, the head honcho. Number one, we're going to be talking to you this week about no books. No books this week. Not like there aren't books this week. We even wrote about books this week. We're going to be talking about films. Stephen Garrett's going to be here to talk about Dune, and then he's going to tune in to talk about Titan, the French movie about a woman who has sex with a car. And it's about other things, too. We're going to talk about that. And then Paula Schaefer's going to stop by to talk about the absolute miracle of the fact that Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 1 is getting a sequel on Hulu. And that's what we got for you this week. I hope you enjoy it. We're leading off this week with a song from Queen called I'm in Love with My Car. Now, we're, we're talking about Titan, which is this French movie that won the Palme d'Or, and it's about a woman who has sex with a car. And so I Googled uh, songs about people who love their cars, and there's literally a song by Queen from 1975 about them having sex with a car, about the singer having sex with a car. It's not Freddie Mercury. He wasn't in love with cars. He liked boys, mostly. But the drummer from Queen apparently had a thing for cars. Maybe he even got pregnant by one. I don't know. Enjoy the song. Enjoy the show. Stephen Garrett is back here on the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast for a segment that, well, we haven't really named the segment yet. Uh, I, I, was, I was proposing we call it Let's Talk About Movies with Stephen. We haven't got anything better than that yet. I mean, we can call it, <laughs> let's call it Let's Talk Dirty to the Animals. I, I, I don't know what to call it, but Stephen Garrett is our uh, chief film critic, Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic, a man who has been criticizing films since before the dawn of film. Stephen, hello. Uh, hello. I prefer the term review instead of critique. I would not raise myself to that rarefied level. I like to say whether it's good or bad and uh, let the audience decide whether uh, it's worth critical study. Your lack of pretension is what has sustained you all these years. So uh, <laughs> I, I wish I could say the same. So this week you are reviewing the new Dune movie, the Dennis Villeneuve version of the Frank Herbert uh, novel that is – is it different than the David Lynch 1980s version, which I have a kind of a soft spot for? Uh, you know, I have a very soft spot for it as well. And uh, is it different? Well – Yes, in the sense that Villeneuve is only doing the first maybe 200 pages of the book or the first 300 pages, and uh, Lynch was doing the entire book. So what Lynch does in the first 60 minutes of his movie is what Villeneuve does for two and a half hours. So it's long and slow and boring is what you're saying. Well, it's not rushed, and it's more emotional, and it feels more epic. You know, it's it, Lynch's version it is like a cliff notes. It's more like a summary of a movie than an actual movie. Everything comes at you so quickly at breakneck speed. And he's using so many different types of storytelling. Lynch does, you know, he uses voiceover and uh, different people reading each other's minds and text on screen and conversations between characters and also a lot of weird, surreal imagery, you know. Uh, it's a noble failure, uh, but I think a very interesting one that's still compelling, as you and I seem to be wanting to talk about that as much as we want to talk about this new version. 
The new version is calmer and more majestic and takes its source material uh, more to heart. I think Lynch was interested in the material as a kind of springboard into other ideas, and Villeneuve is very faithful and devout to the source text. Isn't that more um, uh, in line with our times, though, where intellectual property is just being produced down the line? I mean, there's there there is a you know, they just renewed Apple's foundation series for a second season, even though I thought it was kind of I thought the first few episodes were pretty boring and lousy. You know, we're, we're at a point now where we're paying reverence to that golden age of science fiction. And it sounds like this version of Dune does that. It does, and it does it without it being kind of like fan service. You know, I think that uh, sometimes the tail wags the dog and, you know, the studios or whomever is making the content feel like the people who love it, the audience, uh, is always right. And Villeneuve, I think, does take a certain amount of autorial kind of uh, liberties with the material, but in ways that are very understandable and also wonderfully imaginative. You know, either in the way that he evokes the Bene Gesserit, who are these um, thousands year old, all female religious sect that kind of quietly controls things as much as they are manipulated by events, they seem to always have the upper hand. And the way he evokes them is so wonderfully eerie and strange and powerful that um, it's kind of exciting to watch his version of this movie. Now, Villeneuve, he, he made uh, the Blade Runner sequel, Blade Runner 2049 and Arrival and other movies. Now, he's, you know, no, no one can doubt that he's like a skilled genre director, that he knows how to, you know, craft a scene and, you know, create bizarre imagery. Um, yeah, I, I find his movies lacking in um, in humor. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they're they're a little self-serious, right? They're very, and this is certainly that uh, as well. But you know, he casts it quite well. You know, you have you have Aquaman in here. You have uh, Jason Momoa. You have you got Josh Brolin, who's such a like a bro, and you got Oscar Isaac, who is a very serious actor. But there's a sense of play and a sense of action which uh, his movies generally don't have. You know, I agree with you. They tend to stew in this kind of twilight, crepuscular areas. And this is that, too. It's very chiaroscuro, and it's very drained of color. But um, there's more fun in the action moments and more of uh, a sense of awe in encounters with the sandworms and things like that. And there's a little bit of joking around here and there. I mean, there's some funny moments, genuinely funny moments. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, there also the cast also contains, I believe, Rebecca Ferguson. If I'm am I incorrect about that? I, she's one one of my favorite screen presences, and also and then of course uh, Zendaya and Timothy Chalamet um, as our as our star-crossed lovers in the desert. Yeah, exactly right. And and uh, Zendaya is a, a complete misdirect. You know, I think they use her to bring in uh, the younger audience, but uh, her role is going to be much larger in part two. This is part one. You know, it says so at the beginning of the film, part one, and at the end it says to be continued. So there's no there's no alighting that fact. And uh, Zendaya, is, or she kind of pops up in a cheat at the beginning as part of a dream uh, that Paul Atreides, who is uh, Chalamet, has. And then she pops up at the very end, and that's it. But Chalamet, of course, you know, adds this kind of youthful kind of uh, he's he's very young looking, but he has an old soul. And I think that speaks well to Paul Atreides, who is this kind of put upon young man who watches his family suffer and then also finds himself elevated as a sort of savior. 
all of these things are out of his control, and I think the, the movie is about struggling to get a grip on what is happening around him. Rebecca Ferguson plays his mom, Lady Jessica, who is part of the Bene Gesserit, and she was instructed to only have girls and decides to have a boy. And that's where Paul Atreides comes from, and his all of his special powers come from this kind of religious sect. And so she's very conflicted. The Bene Gesserit are angry at her for having this boy and kind of threaten his life. And so she's terrified for him kind of at every turn and loves him dearly. So that relationship is really front and center much more than it is in the book. Uh, and I think that makes the movie also very compelling. Now, I have not I have not seen Dune yet. I have tickets to see. I, I, I'm going to see it on an IMAX. It was recommended that you see this thing on an IMAX. I couldn't get tickets until like a week from whenever we're talking right now. <laughs> so did, did you see it on a, on a large screen as well? Yeah, I did. And what kind of surprised me, impressed me about the IMAX was how much of it was actually composed for the IMAX screen for that big format. You know, it really fills top and bottom, side to side. The interior seemed to be scope, the kind of widescreen, quote unquote, uh, more traditional aspect ratio. But, you know, when they get out in the desert, when they're big battles, it feels like anything that happens outside is done in the IMAX uh, aspect ratio. And it just is overwhelming. It's thrilling. Uh, and, you know, it's a director who's really trying to engage all of your senses and also show you something um, that is vast and threatens to kind of overwhelm you. It, it really um, is is a theatrical experience in the truest sense of that word. All right, that's Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve, and it is open now in movies. You should see it on an iPad. Do not watch it on your phone. <laughs> watch it. Um, <laughs> watch it in a dome in as large a format as you can. Uh, speaking speaking of theatrical experiences that threaten to overwhelm you, this is a movie that I have seen. I wrote about it on the site this week. Titan, this year's winner of the Palme d'Or at Cannes. I know that you uh, you saw this as well in France. Uh, Stephen and wrote about it a little bit, and then I, I I popped a review up this week. Now I gave Titan five stars, and you you wrote me an email saying, "Oh, someone loves this Titan," and I'm like, "Well, <laughs> I'm like, it's not exactly true. Like, I, I can't say I love this movie, but how many? I mean, how can you not give this thing five stars? I mean, I suppose four is is adequate, but you know." You gave four stars to uh, the James Bond movie. I saw that, and this is way better than that. You know, and, and anything below feels like an insult, unless you were just completely grossed out by it, which I was. But it's just, I found Titan to be like, you know, an incredibly original movie in, in a way that you just don't see very often. So it just kind of like changed the language of things in, in a way that I, I just I just don't encounter movies very often. So I was like, well. Shit, all right, I have to. It's, it's got to be either either it's a complete piece of garbage, which is possible, or it's a complete masterpiece. So anyway, that, that's, that's how I feel about it. So Titan is like, it's a movie about a woman who has a steel plate in her head because she didn't buckle her seatbelt when she was a girl uh, and was in a car accident. And this has turned her into some kind of strange psychopath, or she was already a psychopath. And then after uh, an attempted sexual assault, she has sex with a car and gets pregnant by the car. Right. Car impregnates her with, yeah. with a half yeah. human, half car baby. Right. As one does. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and I was, as I said in my review, you know, I used to be a car journalist. And so, you know, the, the idea of someone wanting to have sex with a car is not alien to me. I knew I knew people who were essentially car sexuals. They just they they just never they never I don't know. They, they may have actualized it. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, but then, as you mentioned, you you are the one who planted the seed in my head. 
that this movie has Pulp Fiction-like qualities to it. And I don't mean like it's pulpy because it, it is pulpy, but like the movie Pulp Fiction, like it, it, it plays with our, our idea of what narrative should be and how characters should evolve in, in a really strange and original way. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad you had that kind of reaction to it. And I remember somebody described Pulp Fiction to me as, in the, in the context of genre, and said, great films transcend genre which is to say it kind of creates a new genre for itself. It's a way of telling a story that you haven't seen before that mixes elements of different genres in a way that you haven't seen before as well. And, and this does. This is comedy. It's horror. It's a little screwball at times. It's very, you know, it's a family drama at the same time. It's, you know, Cronenbergian body horror at its best, you know. It, it really borrows from a lot of different types of storytelling, but really tells a story in a way that is completely original. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, and so, you know, what happens is, you know, I mean, I'm not going to give away the whole the whole story of the ending, but basically, like, this woman goes on the run and ends up getting adopted by a fire chief who's a, <laughs> grieving, a grieving French fire chief who, um, you know, is as seemingly as straight-laced as they come. He's very macho. I mean, he lives in a firehouse with some very macho fire dudes. <laughs> like, super hetero, super macho, super, I don't know what you call it, cis-normative firefighters. And, um, you know, and, and then, so that, that's like the second half of the movie, while this sort of woman, woman who's pregnant with a car, baby, but is pretending to be a boy, is living with them. <laughs> And somehow the movie just makes you think like, oh, yeah, this is happening. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, she's she she like tapes down her breasts and she tapes down her stomach, which becomes more and more ridiculous as she gets more and more pregnant. But Vincent Lindon, this father fireman who's looking for his son and finds it in this woman who's a serial killer on the run who disguises as as his son. Pregnant with a car, baby. Exactly. Uh, but Vincent Landant is clearly out of his gourd. Like, like the guy is insane with grief for the loss of his son. And even at one point, you remember his ex-wife comes back and basically says, look, he needs to believe that you're his son. So just don't break his heart. So there's this sense of aching and longing and, and this need to connect and people who struggle to find a way to connect. I mean, I think what's interesting about the protagonist in Titan is she fucks a car. Yeah, but she cannot have any sort of normal relation with anybody. She has sex with men. She has sex with, with women, but she doesn't necessarily seem romantically or sexually attracted to really anything until this car. And and I, I see it also as a fable about, you know, uh, uh, it's a fable about connection, about families, about acceptance, um, you know, regardless of what form that takes, whether you've got a car baby in your belly or whether you're a a girl who's actually a boy or a boy is actually a girl. You know, it's very gender fluid, this whole film, which makes it feel very current and very timely and modern. Um, but I think there's some timeless elements in this too, of just, you know, people aching to connect and, and form a sort of family because they need it, you know? Now that's all, that that's all very mushy and touchy feely and, and true. Yeah. Um, but you know, also like, it's, there's just set piece after set piece in, in this movie that's very gripping. You know, I found I, I loved the scene where they go on this emergency call and they have to try to save the save the lives of this guy who's overdosed, and then his elderly mother has a heart attack while she's watching right. them. And there's all this drama that has nothing real. I mean, it's thematically connected to the main story, but it's just really like a it's just like kind of a, one of these gripping Tarantino like set pieces. You know, I talked about this in my review, like very uh, occasionally. 
occasionally a m- movies come along that change the language of film or change the way we look at genre pieces. I mentioned stuff like Bonnie's Bonnie and Clyde and Rosemary's Baby and Jaws and then Pulp Fiction and then more recently like Jordan Peele's movies and you know I, I would put like Midsummer and Hereditary in, the, in that category although some people would disagree with me but regardless yep. those movies like change the way we look at what is possible in movie storytelling and there's no doubt to me that like Titan does that in, in a strand and people are going to be talking about it e- even if e- even people who don't like it and I don't I definitely think not everyone's going to like this movie <laughs> it's weird yeah. yeah yeah for sure you know I was talking to a friend of mine who said uh, he saw it at the New York Film Festival and I bring that up in context only because he was in a theater with hundreds of other people and they were all captive audiences you know they they committed to watching and they watched it all the way through and he said if I had watched it on a streaming service I would have turned it off after 20 minutes because it was just gross and weird and silly. Um, but he stuck with it, and audiences give each other permission to laugh or to cry or to react nervously about something that they're watching that's uncomfortable and really original, you know? And I think that, that's the best way to see something like Titan. Uh, watching it by yourself, you may be the type of person who completely connects with the material that you're watching, but you may also just as easily be uh, somebody who's easily distracted, uh, maybe bored or grossed out more acutely than you might otherwise be. And you might dismiss it as being silly or provocative for provocation's sake. But there's, it's, it's a real um, thinker, this movie. Let me put it that way. Yeah, I basically watched it by myself. I was in a you know a small theater in Austin with two other people. Um, you know that's how like a lot of people are going to experience this movie because now right, it's, right, right. Yeah, yeah sure. Seeing it in a festival, yes, you're gonna you're gonna get the full cinematic experience. But it, 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 I might as well have been at a private screening. It's not you know it's not the. Uh, Although, again, I think it is gathering momentum, like I said. And the, the one thing I wanted to add about Titan before I, I release you back into your, your your real life is that, you know, unlike the other movies that I mentioned that sort of are tra- transforming the way we look at movies, this movie is directed by a woman. You know, Julia Ducournau has a highly original vision, and, you know, I think that it, it's nice to see, like, that, um, you know, universe of, like, transformative movies expanding to female directors. Well, and I think also not to sound chauvinistic uh, or reductive by saying, you know, like, well, women, you know, wow, women are telling us, you know, and showing us things that we haven't seen before. Well, yes, they that is true. But also, I think we've become so acclimated to a very specifically male point of view and male storytelling structures and concepts and subjects, you know, like I don't think a man would necessarily think of lactating motor oil. But no. it kind of reminds me of Claire Denis in High Life. I don't know if you saw, if you caught that one. Well, I did not. But but the 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 movie that I saw in Austin, they had a segment of High Life uh, before the movie, the one where the, all the all the soldiers were wrestling. That clearly, um, you know, I mean, yes. And so I, I just feel like a lot of times when you when you talk about the female gaze in movies, you end up with something that's good. But something like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, <laughs> you know, which is like literally like a you know, Victorian lesbian romance set on a, a French islet. Whereas <laughs> yeah, this, this is like, this is like a, a very, movie that is very electric and modern and fresh feeling. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I bring up Claire Denis too, because she talks about the female experience in a visceral way that I think is still novel and possibly just completely foreign to a lot of viewers who are used to the male gaze and, and male objectification and male storytelling. 
the world is richer and better for it. I think we're going to rename this uh, this segment Mansplainer Critic uh, Reviewer Guys. <laughs> the Mansplainers. The Mansplainers. How about Woke Mansplainers? Because we are admitting that our view isn't necessarily the best all the time. You can be woke. I can be semi-woke. And we'll meet in the middle. Uh, but Stephen, <laughs> We'll talk about uh, movies uh, with you again soon, and we're going to find a name for this segment. Uh, Steven's review of Dune is up on the site now. My review of Titan is also up on the site now. If you want to read men writing about uh, movies, then Book and Film Globe this week is the place for you. We do have female critics as well. We do have female critics as well. We're not choosy. You know, we just we just assign people the movies they want to watch. That's right. We're gender blind. <laughs> yeah. All right, Stephen. Talk to you soon. So I was feeling kind of glum this week. I was feeling like uh, the world was no longer funny, that entertainment was no longer entertaining, and that my life was meaningless, and I was heading down a dark hole. And then came the news that Hulu has commissioned an eight-episode series from Mel Brooks, of all people, called History of the World Part Two. Now, this is a sequel to History of the World Part One, a Mel Brooks movie that came out 40 years ago. And somehow, Mel Brooks is still around to make History of the World Part Two. I don't know how it happened. It, it literally is a miracle, and I'm so happy, and I can't wait to see it. I'm going to not do anything until it comes out. I'm joined by Paula Schaefer, Book and Film Globe contributor, to talk about the miracle of the rebirth of History of the World. Hello, Paula. How are you? What a miracle we have to talk about. It's like Mel Brooks was sitting around during COVID, like, what have I not achieved? What did not get crossed off of my bucket list? And it was History of the World Part Two. So now we get it. I, I can't believe it. Well, everybody, pretty much everybody involved in History of the World Part One is dead. You know, Gregory Hines is dead. Harvey Corman, Madeline Kahn, Dom DeLuise, Cloris Leachman, all the stars of the movie. Uh, like Technically, Pamela Stevenson is still alive. She's a psychiatrist in Beverly Hills. And then you have 95-year-old Mel Brooks, who is still there, and he's still obviously conscious. I thought he was done. I thought he was going to just retire and, and watch Jeopardy with Carl Reiner. Uh, but Carl Reiner passed away, and he lost his best friend, and he he's going to find some more. You know, what I find interesting about this show is that, you know, it's uh, some of its co-showrunners include um, – Nick Kroll, Ike Barinholtz, Wanda Sykes. So, you know, they've, they've chosen interesting people to co-create here. Yeah, I really thought about the Nick Kroll one for a while. And, you know, he had Kroll Show, which was so hilarious. And when I thought about Mel Brooks and the context of his, like, sloppy, broad, wordplay, scattershot comedy, meeting up with Nick Kroll's, like, honed-in precision zings at characters and people it made sense. It was like the new chocolate and peanut butter. Yeah, it does make sense. And Nick Kroll also, he does funny songs too. You know, I mean, there's that, that bro country parody he did, but there's, there's a bunch of them, but I love their bro country parody. And, you know, it's just like you know, Nick Kroll is a little younger than us. He's in his forties, his mid forties, but um, you know, he's still basically, I consider him like of my generation and he is part of the generation that grew up and was formed 
by History of the World Part One. I felt like my life changed forever when I saw that movie. I'm like, wait, you can have fart jokes in the Roman Empire? You know, you can do an, an eight-minute number making fun of the Spanish Inquisition with Jews being tortured, and that's funny? It changed everything. It changed everything. And it's not even really like, it's not even really that good, <laughs> you know? No, it's really not. I watched it again last night uh, in preparation for this, and I was like, yeah, this is pretty much how I remember it. No, but I, 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 I find the whole French Revolution bit at the end I, it, way too long, not nearly enough jokes. I don't love it, you know, but there are there are moments of incredible inspiration, such as the end sequences where they talk about, you know, seeing Hitler on ice and Jews in space. The, the Spanish Inquisition number in the middle is like is an incredible tour de force. The Inquisition, let's begin. The Inquisition, look out, Sam. We have a mission to convert the Jews. We're going to teach them wrong from right. We're going to help them see the light and make an offer that they can't refuse. That the Jews just can't refuse. Confess. It was. It came at the end of Mel Brooks's. I don't know if he even had a golden age of movies. I mean, there's Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. You know, that was pretty good. And Spaceballs, if you're really needy. Spaceballs, you you could stretch to Spaceballs into the mid-80s if you want it. You know, and and, and yeah, the, the musical number in Robin Hood, Men in Tights is pretty good. <laughs> no one thinks that Mel Brooks, you know, he's not a subtle artiste, you know. He, he, he's not known for the subtle, he's, he's very broad gestured. But the fact that this even exists at all, to me, is just such um, an incredible testament to how nothing ever dies in our culture. Yeah, that's true. And, and we want everything to come back. Everything. You say that. It, but interestingly, one of the things that had me despairing up until I heard the Mel Brooks news was this. There was an op-ed by David Zucker, who's one of the Zucker brothers, creators of the airplane movies of the Naked Gun series, Police Squad, my favorite, personal favorite comedy of all time, Top Secret. And um, he wrote a piece, I guess it was originally, uh, originally for Commentary Magazine, over the weekend, basically saying that Airplane couldn't get greenlit now because it's had racially offensive and and a lot of body sex humor and he's like there's no way this would get greenlit now society is too woke and i put up a post on my facebook feed which you exist on and i said i'm with you david zucker i love airplane screw the people who would try to shoot that down today and you know lots of people got on there and agreed with me but there's this one guy who gets on there and he's like nope airplane is irrelevant and anyone who still thinks it's funny is an emotionally stunted 12-year-old. I mean, I was just one guy, but it made me feel kind of depressed. I read that article, too, and it goes with his thing where he called it like the Twitter 9%, the 9% of the population that gets so offended they need to make a lot of noise. And they've always been there. They just used to have to write letters. <laughs> and now they have a public forum. And it's this sense of... People don't understand, like scattershot, broad, hit everyone, gags and jokes, and they think that every little nudge is a punch down. Yeah, it's that Borstbelt mentality, you know, and, that, that, and, and you know, it comes from – a lot of it comes from Jews. It's a Jewish sense of humor, although although you could argue that, you know, it was also practiced by Richard Pryor, you know, and, and uh, in the 70s. It, it's an underdog sense of humor to make fun of people like that because Mel Brooks isn't punching down. Like you can't get any further down the pole of being punched than a guy who grew up Jewish when Mel Brooks grew up, you know? So it's like, I, I don't quite, you know, I don't quite get it. I feel like they're making fun of everybody. And the, the idea that airplane 
I mean, yes, it's irrelevant in that like airport disaster movies aren't relevant anymore. No one makes them. So it's an old genre that they're parodying. But the style of humor and the pacing of the jokes is not to me irrelevant and is incredibly relevant and can even be brought into the present day to a slightly more woke sensibility. You don't have to you don't have to have the exact same sensibility of the Zucker brothers or Mel Brooks. Yeah. And I mean, and that still happens and it's still funny, like anti-Tribeca was just kind of a modern knockoff of the police squad, which turned into the naked gun. You know, it didn't get a lot of buzz. It was on TBS, but it lasted several seasons. That's and, the uh, Rashida Jones parody of like CSI shows, basically. Yeah. And it's it's the same thing. Like she works in like the really heinous crimes unit, the H, the RHCU. And, you know, the, the detectives names are like DJ Tanner and things that call back on pop culture. And uh, it's that style. But people just didn't. Didn't take to it. And again, yeah. it was it was on TBS. TBS is a, is a TV graveyard. Yeah, that's a weird place over there. But, you know, I'm just trying to think of like, all right, well, what, you know, and you, you're a, a connoisseur of comedy. Like, what is still funny? Like, there aren't a lot of good comedy movies being made like that. You know, that parody genre in films really, um, you know, scary makes scary movies seems like a like like a subtle work of art compared to some of the stuff. That, that came later. So I don't laugh at movies much, but I still, there's still TV shows that make me laugh. You know, I love what we do in the shadows, for instance. Oh yeah. I, I laugh at that every week. Uh, there's a show on HBO max called the other two, which is kind of like a parody of um, pop culture in general and, and gay culture in particular that I think is, is quite, quite funny. You know, curb your enthusiasm still makes me laugh. I don't know. Maybe you can come up with some other examples. I guess is if you think of like the broad, like raunchy, kind of loose, sloppy comedy, the closest you can get is like 10 years ago, Bridesmaids or Dodgeball. And I was like, what, what, what is that? And I think that Mel Brooks didn't care about having a character that you, the audience, identified with and connected to. He just wanted you to laugh. But now every comedy, you have to like care about the person and have a relationship of sorts with them and who they are and what they're thinking and where they're going in life. And it slows down the comedy sometimes you just want something that makes you feel nothing and you just laugh and then leave and later think haha that was funny right well we can hope that with history of the world part two we're going to see abraham lincoln getting a pie in the face or uh, you know a, a farting george washington I'm, i was trying to think of what eras of history they could draw upon there's some, there's a lot of the sort of american realm of things they can make fun of napoleon uh, you know, World War Two is very good. There's a lot. There, it could go on and on. I mean, and you could. I don't know if they're going to be eight hour long episodes. I suspect it's going to be half hours. But that's still a lot of history of the world to squeeze in. I, for one, can't wait. And I hope that it's popular. And I hope that it's offensive. And I hope that when people are offended, everyone tells them to you know buzz off. And when they, when there are protests, they're not effective. That's my hope. Yeah, I mean, we we need that kind of comedy because the exciting thing about that kind of broad, slapstick, goofy humor is the magic of it because it's just running down the rails and you don't know if it's going to fall off and you don't know where it's going to go. And, you know, that's very welcome. We need that right now. Yes, we need the King of France pissing into a bucket. We, we need that coin tossed in that bucket. More than ever. All right, Paula, thanks a lot. History oh, of the sure. World Part 2 is coming hopefully soon. And I will watch it, I don't know, 10 to 15 times. The first day. Yeah, exactly. All right. Thanks, Paula. Talk to you soon. 
right. Thanks, Paula Shaver, for talking to me about the state of comedy today. I think it's about to get a lot better. That's my opinion, and I'll stick to it. Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for talking about Dune and Tatan with me. Both are movies that you may see if you go to the movies, and you should go to the movies because they're still here, and we should go to them before they're gone. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the world of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We're going to close this week with a song from the end of History of the World Part 1. That's right. There's a sequel coming soon. It's Mel Brooks writing and singing. I don't think he's actually singing this, but he wrote the song, Jews in Space. It's where we all belong in space. It's where all Jews belong. Go with God. It's a mitzvah. We'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 